You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. of Donald Trump as the 45th President of the United States in 2016, there have been countless think pieces seeking to explain the cause of a political shift that, to many, seemed to come out of nowhere. Many such think pieces focused on the apparent hypocrisy inherent in the fact that 81% of white evangelical voters supported Trump despite the fact that his brash, vulgar public persona and his attitude toward women and marriage contradicted their publicly held values. In her book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, Calvin College historian Kristen Dumay ultimately argues that evangelical Trump supporters hold this position not in spite of his demeanor, but because of it. Dumay expertly traces the development of autocratic, militant, evangelical masculinity over more than a century, from the valorization of man's man Teddy Roosevelt to preachers like Billy Graham and James Dobson framing men as divinely ordained leaders of family and country, and culminating in the widespread commercial marketing of so-called biblical gender roles in the 20th century, from niche bookstores to radio to television. Importantly, she also notes the connections between popularizing such gender roles and the ideology of Christian nationalism. It is this connection between the small-scale dominance of the home and the large-scale dominance of global politics, all in the name of worshiping a hyper-masculine Jesus, that she argues brought the United States to the current moment. Those who were surprised at that moment's arrival just weren't paying attention to the right patterns. Thanks so much for being on Christian Humanist Profiles today, Kristen. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be back. So, the last time I interviewed you a couple of years ago, we ended that chat as we usually do on Profiles, with a discussion of your next project, which was not in fact this book, but was, uh, at that time, a book on Hillary Clinton's Methodism. It's probably both true and oversimplified to say that the 2016 election was the catalyst for that change, uh, but that's not the whole story. You mention in this book's acknowledgments that uh, the real start of this book's argument came about through conversations you had with some of your students uh, that started a long time ago, about 15 years ago. Can you take us through some of the threads that those conversations started weaving together that led to Jesus and John Wayne? Sure. Yeah, it was more than 15 years ago that uh, I was lecturing in a U.S. history class at Calvin on, uh, it was my first or second year year there, um, and I was lecturing on Teddy Roosevelt, and I, I had a little unit where I showed how ideas of gender were changing and were linked to economic changes and to war and foreign policy, and Teddy Roosevelt and his muscular Christianity was just the perfect kind of illustration of this. And after that class, a couple of guys came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book you really need to to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And this was 2005 or 2006, and the book was 
all the rage, uh, you know, had sold or would go on to sell more than 4 million copies. Every college guy seemed to be reading it in their dorm rooms, in church small groups. And uh, so I took a look and I saw exactly what they meant. The book opens with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, and it goes on to just present this very kind of um, militaristic, militant vision of Christian manhood, that God is a warrior God and men are made in his image and every man needs a battle to fight. And this was right around the time of the Iraq war. And I was seeing all of the survey data that white evangelicals were disproportionately supportive of the war, of preemptive war generally, more likely than any other Americans to condone the use of torture. And so I started to explore how this kind of militant masculinity, Christian manhood might be linked to aggressive foreign policy and, and to what we were seeing more broadly. So at that time, I actually explored this, uh, researched this in earnest for, for over a year, um, but then I ended up setting the project aside for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it was incredibly disturbing what I was uncovering, um, and I wasn't sure I wanted to live with this project, um, honestly, spiritually, for uh, the length of time it would take to complete. But also, um, I was really struggling to figure out if this was really marginal or if it was if it was mainstream. And if it was marginal, do I really want to shine this bright light on the dark underbelly of American Christianity? Uh, so I just I had other things going on. I had a couple of kids. I finished my first book. And so I kept meaning to come back to the project. Um, in ensuing years, I, I did keep an eye on some of the main characters, uh, and, and I started to notice how one after another became implicated in uh, abusive power scandals or sexual abuse scandals, and so I just kept taking notes. Uh, but then, yes, I decided um, my first book was on the history of Christian feminism, focusing on progressive Methodist women. And so I thought, huh, Hillary Clinton stands so clearly in this tradition. Let me let me explore that a bit. And so when 2015, 2016 rolled around, I was deep into you know, religion and politics, but really focusing on Clinton and keeping an eye on white evangelicals. Um, but it was in uh, almost exactly four years ago, um, the fall of 2016, with the release of the Access Hollywood tape that things clicked for me, um, that we saw that white evangelicals were not going to uh, uh, turn away from their support of uh, an abusive man, um, right, who was on, um, on camera bragging about sexually abusing women. And suddenly I thought, I've seen this before. We've seen this before. And so at that point, and then certainly after the election, I uh, decided to um, to dust off that old research and to uh, explore evangelical masculinity and militarism in its personal and political ramifications, and um, hope at some point to return to the Hillary book. But but this this one really really needed to take center stage. Um, absolutely. I, I do think that this is, is such an incredibly timely and interesting book. And uh, it was really interesting for me to read now as well. Um, you mentioned the, the genesis of those classroom conversations starting around 2005. Uh, I graduated high school in 2004. 
so a lot of the the books you're talking about and, and the student conversations you're talking about ring very true to my own late adolescent experience. Um, I think probably every cute boy I wanted to date in the Baptist Student Union was into John Eldridge, uh, which was, was not um, a, a good thing for me. Um, and at the time, I, I kind of thought it's because I was, was geared wrong. I hadn't yet discovered Christian feminism. But I, I knew that there was something about the stuff that they were reading and the, the masculine viewpoints that they were espousing that just did not resonate with me. Um, and it, it took me, you know, the ensuing decade to figure out that this militant masculinity did not resonate with my own biblical hermeneutics. Um, but I, I think it's so fascinating that this starts for you at a Christian college in conversations with men and women who are trying to figure out what their own adult manhood and womanhood are and um, how those things are related to one another. I spent a few years teaching literature and gender studies at an evangelical college myself. Um, I had a lot of really similar conversations with my own students. Do you think that being around young people undergoing this kind of gendered identity development framed how you viewed the ways uh, the social trends like uh, evangelical gender roles and Christian nationalism intersecting uh, come together? Does it matter that you were uh, discussing this with people who were themselves figuring those things out? That's such an interesting question. Uh, I think that um, I, I think that probably by moving uh, in student circles and listening to students and really watching them change over the years, kind of the students that came into my classroom, has impacted my scholarship. But I think that it has done so primarily in the sense of how I understand uh, what religion is and what evangelicalism is um, more specifically and what it looks like, what religious formation looks like um, with my students. So I, uh, even though I primarily teach history courses, I also teach this course for first year students called Developing a Christian Mind, which is a kind of introduction to reformed thinking to uh, Calvin University, and uh, what I what I discovered in that course is uh, deeply religious students, right, who had gone to church all through childhood, many of whom had attended Christian schools. Uh, still, these students had often a very thin theological literacy. That. Um, it really made me wonder if these students who are self-selecting a Christian university um, have such a loose grasp on theology with, you know, one or two exceptions per, per class, uh, you know, what really is the, um, the heart of their faith as they are living it, as they are experiencing it? And what is really forming this faith? Because I think that scholars who write about evangelicalism, many of them tend to be evangelicals themselves, and all of us are intellectuals, right? And so uh, we tend to think of, of religion through intellectual categories as belief, as theology, as a set of doctrines that you can ascribe to and believe in. Um, 
And what I saw is if, is if it's not really about very specific beliefs or doctrines, um, that is the way that my students are encountering this faith. You know, how are they encountering faith? What does faith look like to them? And this was certainly also very much the case when I would participate in a women's Bible study, for example, in my church, right? Um, that faith seemed to be not so much about um, theological categories, certainly. It was about something else. And so that really, I think, turned me in the direction of popular culture in, in the direction of like things like Christian radio and popular Bible studies or, you know, Christian living books, um, Christian radio, like focus on the family. Um, these are the kinds of things that I think have had a much deeper impact in kind of um, forming the religious identity of many Christians and not just the younger generation. Um, but my generation and even our parents' generation. Um, and so it just kind of shifted my, my understanding to a more popular um, examination of religion. And, um, uh, and, and that really led me to, to do this as a, as a cultural history, a, a, an examination of what ordinary people um, experience as their faith and, and what actually forms that. Um, I'm really glad that you use the phrase cultural history. Um, that's the thing that sticks out most to me about this book. And, and I think probably why um, one reason why it resonated so strongly with me. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago while I was um, finishing reading the book and, and starting to prep for this interview. She noticed uh, the title and the cover and said, oh, that looks really interesting. What's the book about? And I talked a little bit and I, I mentioned uh, gender roles and evangelicalism and the military. Uh, but the thing I didn't really know that the book was about until I vocalized it myself is uh, I said, first and foremost, I really think this is a book about the power of marketing because so much of what you discuss in it uh, is tied to, as you just said, things like uh, Christian book publishing, television, radio, um, were you aware of the fact that this was very much a book about uh, the marketing of Christian culture as a culture while you were writing it? Um, and, and how important do you think marketing techniques and the way that they've evolved have been to the spread of the kind of masculinity you were talking about? Yeah, I, I, I became aware of this fact as I was writing the book. Uh, again, just to make sense out of what I was seeing, uh, make sense out of out of the literature I was I was looking at, and make make sense out of my own experiences. So um, it, the 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 book kind of progressively moved in that direction, and I think yes, there is there's definitely a link between uh, kind of understanding evangelicalism as a consumer culture and evangelicalism evolving as this consumer culture, and the kind of um, militant masculinity that ends up being at the heart of this book. I think one of the clearest uh, connections there is with the evolution of Christian publishing in the post-World War II era. And uh, I write about the importance of the Christian Booksellers Association, the CBA, uh, which is started um, after World War II. And it is essentially a distribution network for Christian publishing 
um, and it it feeds into all of these uh, Christian bookstores that are are popping up all across the country in the post-war era. Uh, so larger cities, small towns, you know, across the nation, really. And before that time, and here I'm totally drawing on the research of Daniel Silliman and other historians. So he's he's in the footnotes, but I want to give him a shout out here too, because it's really, really key analysis that opened my eyes um, to how to understand this. Uh, he talked about how up until this point in time, a lot of the distribution of religious uh, publications had been through denominational structures. And um, because of that, you could be very theologically specific, precise, um, and, and write within your own denominational tradition. Uh, with uh, the CBA and with the National Association of Evangelicals that had formed in 1942, and this, this idea that we really want to unite all of these, these disparate conservative Protestants so that we can, you know, really have influence in this country. And we're going to do it through the media and we're going to do it through organizations and networks. And the CBA was part of this. But what that meant was you couldn't get too theologically specific. Um, because if you are too Lutheran in your theology, the Presbyterians aren't going to want to read your books, right? They're going to have issues with that. But if you, if you just went with kind of more blandly Christian living topics, how to raise Christ, Christian children, what does it mean to be a Christian man, um, Christian wife, um, how to have sex, right? There's some best-selling Christian sex manuals. Um, oh, we'll talk about works. those. Exactly. You know, that works across across these um, theological differences. And then that ends up, I think, really creating a new religious subculture, right? It unifies across these differences and unites people um, into this common cultural identity that is not very theologically distinct or theologically specific. And by design, it is not. So what I think is is really interesting about that, um, it might be too strong to say theological watering down, but I'm going to go there anyway. Um, what I think is so interesting about the fact that that is hand in hand with this marketing push is that it seems to kind of prepare the way for just as broad conceptions of gender because we are talking more about selling archetypes than we're talking about selling um, as you say specific points of view so i think um, the fact that those uh, sort of gender cookie cutters become very broad is really interesting particularly in terms when we think about the relationship between um, masculinity and femininity that starts to shake out in a lot of these texts um, in that vein i really i don't want to say enjoyed because that is not the right word um was uh was made emotional by perhaps um chapter three where you start to talk about um, women's roles within uh, complementarian marketed theology because I think it's so interesting how some of the women in that chapter women like Phyllis Schlafly um, who was a political activist and women like Maribel Morgan who was a, a more popular uh, sex advice author seem to be exceptions to the general complementarian rule um, complementarianism broadly says uh, women are keepers at home and men are breadwinners uh, women are to be helpmeets 
But these two women essentially have careers telling women that women shouldn't have careers. Uh, and often because of that, they get painted, you know, as, as hypocrites, as um, shills for the patriarchy. I've heard them called. Um, I think that's maybe a little oversimplified, but I, I would like to hear your opinion about um, why you chose to talk about Schlafly and Morgan together for one thing because they seem to be very different popular figures and also um, how much agency you think exists for the women who are the flip side of this uh, militant masculinity yeah so uh, I'll start with the agency question you know I think I think we're all constrained in many ways by our by our situations that we find ourselves in, even though we like to think of ourselves as free agents, right? So many of our choices are constrained. Uh, that is certainly the, true for the women that I write about in chapter three. Um, and, and that's what was interesting to me when I looked at somebody like um, Maribel Morgan, for example, she was saying very similar things um, as as Betty Friedan was saying, you know, this kind of feminist classic, um, the feminine mystique, identifying the, the deep unhappiness of American women and of wives in particular. And and, and that that was really striking to me that. Apparently, it seemed like many, many American women were miserable in their marriages, uh, but they really differed when it came to the solutions that they offered. So, you know, for Betty Friedan, this traditional kind of liberal feminism, uh, you know, pursue independence, have a career and, you know, ditch the bad husbands and, and so on. For somebody like Maribel Morgan, the solution was... Uh, to make the best of, of the situation you found yourself in. And she thought you could do that by utterly submitting to your husband, by um, pampering him, by coddling him, by having a lot of sex with him and giving him all, everything he needed so that he would treat you better. Um, maybe giving you, you more spending money, um, just being nicer to you. Um, and, uh, you know, it seems really demeaning, but if you think back to, you know, her audience and you know, many American housewives in the 1960s, you know, might've been, or absolutely were drawn to Betty Friedan's vision, right? That was a best-selling book. But Maribel Morgan's book was also a best-selling book, The Total Woman, uh, with this real anti-feminist message. And I think part of the reason is that many women really felt they needed to um, uh, work with the cards that they were dealt, right? They they um, were married. They maybe had three or four kids at home. They didn't have much of an education. They certainly had, had no sort of career to fall back on. And so the promises of liberation that liberal feminism promised, you can do anything, you can go get a job, you can compete with men, uh, that wasn't attractive and it wasn't realistic. Um, many of these women knew full well they couldn't go out and compete with men because of the choices that they had already made or that had been made for them. And I think that's a, a more sympathetic understanding of at least the plight of many of their readers, that um, what Maribel Morgan was offering them was was not easy. 
uh, you know. Uh, to, it, no, it, it, it must take an awful busy. lot of work. I yes. mean, there's a, there's a lot of planning involved in oh uh, in the total Costume. woman. And so yes. and so many uh, so many costumes and meal plans and like yes. the, there's a whole yes. uh, a, a whole like curriculum happening. Um, yes, and but I, it was something they could do, you know, that they they felt empowered to do. Um, so so that that helped me make sense. But yeah, you take somebody like Maribel Morgan or Phyllis Schlafly, and they are prominent. Um, and, and it does seem paradoxical or hypocritical, if you will, um, for, for them rising to such positions of power, certainly with Phyllis Schlafly, um, but telling other women they should be staying home. But there's a, a real performative aspect here. And within conservative um, Protestantism more generally, the um, ideal of femininity um, and the importance of beauty, of deference, submission to men, like this, this is a, it is a performance. And for somebody like Phyllis Schlafly, who looked incredibly feminine, same with Maribel Morgan, you know, you could look to, um, more recently, Sarah Palin. Um, oh, yes. So, so many, uh, pearls and, and impeccable yes. suits, right? Yes. So femininity and also kind of sexuality, sexual allure and all of these things, they could model that, they could promote that. And in some ways they were, um, you know, so empowered because they were a kind of defense against feminism and, and accusations of feminists uh, that, you know, you your women are disempowered and Phyllis Schlafly, who again was a Catholic, but um, we'll consider her an honorary evangelical for our purposes because she was so influential in evangelical circles, uh, you know, could just say, well, look at me. I don't need feminism and look what I can do. And at the same time, you know, she would always thank her husband for letting her speak. And oh, yeah. She, I, I wanted to, to talk about that since you mentioned performativity. Uh, yeah, she's famously started every single speech by saying, uh, I, I want to thank my husband, Fred, for allowing me to be here today. Um, exactly. And and what a what a savvy move that is, right? Because she's she's anticipating um what her detractors think of her and and speaking right back to it, which which to me seems, you know, like a textbook feminist move. Um yes. but but she of course would not uh frame that way. Right. And she was so good at that and I think if you read that chapter, you can kind of get a sense for a little bit of my admiration for her skills and for her, the power that, and for what she was able to do, even as I think, you know, the results of, of her work have been really devastating, not just for conservative women, uh, in my mind, but honestly for, uh, for our nation as a whole, because she was played this critical role of really melding these traditional, quote unquote, traditional gender roles together with Christian nationalism and really politicizing uh, uh, conservative Christian women and, and really facilitated the rise of the religious right. And um, to an extent that she doesn't always get credit for, but if you look back historically, I mean, she was really pivotal. I mean, she she almost literally puts a price on um, the unity of the evangelical voting bloc. I mean, we know that she sells um, the Eagle Forum mailing list, her her 
thousands and thousands and thousands uh, of followers a mass mailing list she essentially sells it to the Reagan administration so so um, yes I, I do I don't think you can really overstate the importance of that in terms of how we ended up where we ended up um, and I, I do agree with you that she I'm just fascinated by her and think that she's such an interesting powerful complex figure so I, I really appreciated that you didn't let um, her or sort of Maribel Morgan on the other more popular side of the coin be reduced to uh, caricature or cardboard cutout because I think there's definitely more going on there. Yeah, yeah, she's she's fascinating. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about how networks work in this marketing structure. We've we've alluded to it a little bit, um, but the first thing that. Um, and I, I, I will say reading this book made me angry many times um, just in terms of like, oh, these people are so frustrating and these patterns are so frustrating. Um, but the, the first sort of anger inducing pattern for me was uh, I was struck by the number of times you say uh, this one person published a book and then his friend, also a powerful evangelical man, published another book and he basically said the same thing as the first guy, but it had a blurb that was popular, so it made a whole bunch of money and the cycle kind of perpetuated itself. Um, can you speak to that? What do networks of masculinity have to do in furthering this uh, marketed vision? I'm so glad you you caught those little references that I made repeatedly throughout the book. I just kept dropping them in because, uh, yes, there is um, little creativity (laughs) within this whole movement and the evolution of of, uh, this this kind of militant Christian masculinity. Uh, And in fact, many of the books uh, really, to my mind, bordered on plagiarism. Uh, the, the cast of characters is almost identical. Phrases are exactly the same. Sometimes they would have you know, end notes, and sometimes they wouldn't. But but there's just a lot of a lot of copying going on. When I first started looking into uh, these books back in 2005, 2006, I was sorely tempted to try my hand at writing one myself because I was looking at the sales figures. And I thought I just need a good, you know, pen name. I was thinking something like, you know, Chuck, uh, uh, what, you know, there has to be a really good, um, you know, last name there that, that, you know, really masculine name. And then I could, these things are, are just, it's a formula and I could totally write one and probably, you know, better than many of these guys. And, um, and again, you know, these are selling the ones that don't sell well, like comparatively are still selling like a hundred thousand copies. <laughs> and I'm thinking this is crazy. So first of all, let's just say so much money is being made here. Um, and then you sell 4 million copies of a book. That is a ton of money. Um, but apart from that, yes, the networks. When um, I, I, I realized, you know, how do we understand evangelicals um, and, and who are evangelicals? And I, I, I first ended up on this idea of it, it's, it's a consumer culture, right? It's, you know, you are an evangelical or we could consider you one 
not just if you attend an evangelical mega church, but if you listen to several hours of Dobson's Focus on the Family every week, if you shop at a Christian bookstore, if you, you know, like that's really who I'm talking about here. But evangelicalism is also a network or multiple interlocking networks. And so as I was researching this book, I started to map those networks and I had three fabulous research assistants who helped me with this. And at one point we had three big pieces of butcher paper up in my office with sticky notes, Sharpies connecting the the webs of connection between different organizations and individuals. So you've got John Piper over here and you've got Doug Wilson over there and you've got the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood with all of these connections, the Gospel Coalition and, and the SBC and, and it just kind of branches out. And this guy's blurbing his book and he invited his friend onto this conference uh, platform. And, and that's really what evangelicalism is and that's how it works. And then you can start to understand uh, the boundaries. So who isn't invited to share the stage? Whose books are not being published by these big Christian publishers? Which books are not being distributed through these massive distribution systems that don't appear on the shelves of a family Christian bookstore back when we had real bookstores uh, you know, that aren't being sold um, by Lifeway Christian books? And that's how these boundaries are, are enforced um, for, for the most part. And you just ask somebody like Jen Hatmaker, how that, how that works. Oh, yeah. And, um, and, you know, again, who is, who is being amplified and which voices are just, um, kind of disappearing. And, and that's really what I wanted to do. And you absolutely see that in these circles of pastors, uh, writers, uh, patting each other on the, on their backs. Um, reinforcing each other, brother in Christ, brother in Christ. You know, you, what you do is so important. What you do is so important. No, what you do is so important, you know? And, and I just saw this uh, culture of deference that they were actively promoting among themselves. And that was the price of admission. If you wanted a successful book, if you wanted uh, to like move up the ladder as a preacher, if you wanted a seat at the table, you needed to show that deference. And then you were owed that deference by others as well. And honestly, I found that incredibly disturbing. And this wasn't really the point of your question, but I'll add. Oh, no, that, please keep going. Um, the, the tone of my book, this, from the subtitle to the chapter titles to the kind of sharp edges throughout, was my very conscious attempt to disrupt that culture of deference. I did not want to participate that in, in, in that in any way. I, I appreciated that so much because I think um, it, it doesn't, first of all, surprise me at all to hear about your um, Sharpie and sticky note uh, maps because you would have to, I think, physically map out something as complex as these networks because they do start to um, bend and, and overlap into each other. But that's how um, I think you ultimately argue that something that starts out more on the margins moves closer to the center, um, which is that I think one of the big disturbing threads in the book. Uh, I know on um, my 
podcast also on this network, the Christian Feminist Podcast. We've done episodes on many of the men that you highlight here. Um, We've done one on Bill Gothard. We've done one on, I believe, Doug Phillips and Doug Wilson were in the same episode. I think we talked about um, Vision Forum and and ATI together. We did an episode on Mark Driscoll's marriage book um, and on and on and on. All of these men are are connected to one another. And like you say, that deference starts to um, build as they repeat each other's viewpoints. And then we end up with uh, somebody like Bill Gothard being, you know, spot lighted on reality television and it just becomes kind of terrifying like there are networks and then there are networks you know <laughs> like capital in television networks exactly yeah and and you're right this question of you know my original question all those years ago what's marginal and what's mainstream i wasn't sure how to tease that out and you can see through the book how I do end up mapping that out. And so I I pair Bill Gothard with James Dobson, you know, and and one is mainstream and one is arguably very marginal. And yet the overlap between what they're ultimately saying is, 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 is fairly tight. And then um, as the book goes on, I really do start to, you know, through these networks, really look at somebody like Doug Wilson, uh, you know, you don't want to put Doug Wilson in the mainstream. He's, he's begging to be, you know, on the margins to be, you know, shouting from the sidelines and it it takes great pride in that. And at the same time, we see him slowly edge towards the mainstream, uh, you know, get endorsed essentially by the likes of, of John Piper and brought into these conferences, you know, published in Christianity Today. And so there is a broader complicity here. And this gatekeeping is fascinating because somebody like Doug Wilson, who is arguably incredibly racist, um, arguably misogynistic, um, uh, you know, he would beg to differ, um, but they, they are allowed in, uh, whereas, again, somebody like Rachel Held Evans or Jen Hatmaker crosses a different line and they are out. And, and that was just really important for me to observe. And in the end, I do end up um, seeing striking affinities between those that we'd like to say are marginal the Duggar family, for example, uh, you know, how marginal is that when you have your own you know, network TV show? Um, right. Two TV shows and multiple YouTube channels now. More, yes, yes, yes. Many more. Um, and, and then, um, yeah, so, so there, um, so who is actually marginal? And especially if we start to understand this populist impulse within evangelicalism that has always been within evangelicalism. So are the leaders, um, you know, the folks at Christianity Today, Wheaton College, you know, InterVarsity Press, um, they might like to think of themselves as the leaders of evangelicalism. But I think they will concede at this point that uh, there's a huge swath of American evangelicalism that absolutely does not look to them as leaders. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a great point. Uh, so, since you mentioned um, both Doug Phillips and Doug Wilson, um, I'm interested to hear your viewpoint as a historian on um, that kind of vision forum 
view of history. Uh, those guys, their their masculinity is both uh, very tied up in um, a particular view of history. Uh, Vision Forum held these titanic parties where they talked about like it was a better time to be a man then because everyone believed in women and children first of course you know no one is is in steerage on these titanic parties um things like that can you comment as a professional historian on um what their historicity has to do with their masculinity and then what's going on there Yeah, so this traditional, again, quote unquote, traditional gender roles, gender difference, this militant masculinity uh, has always been tightly linked to Christian nationalism, to the idea of some mythical American greatness, the idea that America was once a Christian nation and we had strong masculine leaders from the founding fathers onward, and then things went terribly wrong. Religion was feminized and we had the feminist movement and, you know, and then now we can't even fight a war and win in Vietnam. And and so this is this kind of trajectory and that the same people who are promoting this militant manhood, Christian manhood, are also those promoting this, this mythical understanding of the American past, this heritage instead of history, really. Uh, and you know, that's beautifully displayed in Vision Forum, their catalogs, their toys. Um, I mean, I watched video series and um, made my student researchers watch those with me. And it's just steeped in this this kind of uh, Christian heritage, completely ahistorical, but very compelling view of the American past that places Christians at the center of American history and at the heart of American strength and that God will bless America because Christians are at its center. Um, so it's very empowering because they place themselves at the very center of America. And yet it also fuels this victimization narrative because there's a sense that things are slipping, um, that we are no longer at the center of American power And we need to reclaim our place so that God will bless America and so that we can protect America. And so it really works both ways. It's empowering. And then it also promotes this victimization narrative, this declension model that that we're we're losing control. And in order to regain American strength, or if you will, make America great again, we need to reclaim our status And, and this kind of distinct gender roles of Um, proper femininity and rugged masculinity are absolutely at the heart of that. And that's part of this mythical understanding of America's past. And it's part of what they want to recreate in the present. And it's problematic on so many levels. Again, it's ahistorical, um, but it's also, you know, these, these, it's, it's all working with myth. Um, And like you said, archetype. And so, you know, in America's past, Women were never the, you know, sweet, delicate, feminine creatures, certainly not in colonial era, uh, that, that they want to suggest they are. And gender changes over time. You know, gender roles change. Um, meanings ascribed to particular acts change dramatically over time. Women have always worked in different capacities in American history, in world history. And so when you take this mythical, ahistorical understanding and then try to impose it on the present 
it, it will be a very awkward fit. It will take coercion to make it happen. And it's going to often end up in tragedy. And I think that's what we see. All right. Uh, that was such a brilliant explanation of how um, history and, and perversion of history gets us where we are. Um, I want to build on that a little bit and say, um, I, as I said, I graduated high school in the early 2000s. So there were some chapters of this book that I, I knew as history, but that weren't really crystallized in my own lived experience but but started to come together for me through reading and uh, the part that surprised me the most were the sections on um, Oliver North who I, I just kind of knew as like he was in the military and he was a big deal and I know I'm not supposed to like him but I don't really have a developed sense of him other than that and uh, and James Dobson and the connection between um, the evangelical movement and the United States military and the way that relationship was reciprocal in terms of spreading evangelicalism within the military and spreading a kind of masculine uh, ideal that is connected to the military back into evangelical churches. I'm not really a conspiracy theory person, but uh, I think I might be <laughs> after reading that section of your book. It seemed so um, planned out, the reciprocity of, of this relationship. Can we talk about that connection between large-scale military authoritarianism and small-scale um, home-level authoritarianism? What's going on there, and why does it freak me out so much? Yeah, uh, I'm so glad you asked this question about the military because I've been surprised. I've done so many interviews about the book uh, in the last three months, and very few people have asked me about the actual kind of military at the heart of this militarism that I'm talking about and that that relationship, which when I came across that as a historian, I found stunning, uh, as, as you did, and disturbing. And, you know, this can be traced back, uh, well, to, to the Second World War. We see it start up, and Billy Graham is kind of at the center of this very pro-military um, version of Christianity and Christian nationalism. Um, we see it strengthened in the Korean War. Uh, as evangelicals especially go to evangelize the military because earlier it was seen as this place of corruption. Um, you know, don't send your Christian boys into the military. They're going to smoke and drink and have sex. And, you know, it, it's not a good moral place. Um, by the time of Vietnam, that really starts to flip. And evangelicals are saying that's where real masculinity is preserved. And our boys are, you know, good American boys, and they are, you know, going to fight for freedom. And, and the military gets transformed into a place of virtue, when for many other Americans, that's the moment, the Vietnam War, when they start to lose their faith in the military, um, both the military more broadly, but also the behavior of many individual soldiers as stories come back about atrocities committed by U.S. soldiers. And, and so that's the backdrop here. And that just intensifies then by the early 80s, um, by the 1980s, when evangelicals continue to praise the military 
and prop up the authority of the military because they know that the military has this image problem, real PR problem with many Americans. And the military is really cool with that, right? That they see that as absolutely enhancing their power, their rightful authority as they see it, their honor. And, um, and so they welcome the role of evangelicals. And evangelicals also kind of come into the military or continue to work to evangelize and um, to disciple soldiers. And um, the military brass, many look at this kindly, thinking, well, you know, it's going to preserve order, good behavior. That's always helpful. But then increasingly, there are evangelicals themselves up through the ranks of power within, uh, up through the ranks in the military. And so they are especially inviting of, of this evangelism. And this evangelism happens very explicitly um, throughout the military. And yes, it is a reciprocal relationship. So Dobson benefits in, in clear ways. Um, you know, he has this video, Where's Dad? That gets sold you know, to the military, no word on exactly how much, but again, um, whenever money is changing hands, I try to make note of that, you know, whether it's book sales or video sales, or just keep in mind that a lot of money is, is being made here. Oh yeah. Um, I can't tell you how many times when I was taking notes in your book, I wrote, follow the money in the margins. We need to do that. Because evangelicals, well, you know, no, this is about evangelizing. This is about, you know, following God's word. This is about, and it's also about money. Um, and so the, the, the benefits, and also, you know, um, I think Dobson kind of um, gets a little ego boost by affiliating with the generals and, you know, this kind of military culture of honor. And the military is benefiting from this great, you know, PR that um, Dobson has such a following by this time. And so it is, it's very mutually beneficial and I think very problematic. Definitely problematic, especially in terms of this connection between um, overblown masculinity that must become impossible for real human people to live up to and and public power um which yeah. oh and I, if i could also say i forgot i i need to talk about ollie north because he is my sure. favorite and you brought him up um but right he's this perfect example of kind of the culmination of this what it why it's so problematic when you when you kind of associate virtue with the military um then a man like oliver north who broke the laws, you know, might be considered even a traitor to the country, instead is held up as this great American hero. And the ends justify the means. And as I was writing that chapter on North, and I did get absolutely obsessed with North, um, you know, it was the, the resonances with our present moment are so clear. It's it's really chilling to see how evangelicals, you know, in the Southern Baptist Convention, lauded him as this great hero, and he invite him to speak at the SBC Convention, you know, just after the conservative uh, takeover had really been accomplished. And and the ties are just are just really striking. But yeah, it's it's a kind of we know better. Uh, in the cause of righteousness, you know, you might have to break the rules. 
Um, violence might be necessary, but this is okay. This is what real men do. And, and this is our model of, of, of rugged Christian masculinity. I mean, I, I might be an anomaly because I, honestly, part of the reason I started thinking about converting, um, I'm not sure we've had this conversation, but um, I, I recently became Catholic. Uh, I was, was raised um, Southern Baptist and gender roles are, are one of the things that, that got me um, across the Tiber, as they say. Um, just because I, I grew up in this culture of really strictly defined gender roles where it felt like to be feminine was just to be not masculine. And that was the thing that that kind of um, mattered the most. And a lot of that seemed to be wrapped up in nationalism as well. Uh, I was always sort of uncomfortable singing patriotic songs in church. And um, I definitely was in sanctuaries where the flag was in front of the cross sometimes. And that never, never sat right with me. So it, it's really interesting to hear you say that this is um, a, a historical through line that it sort of wasn't always that way, even though it felt like to me growing up in a particular subculture that it had always been that way. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, and it, it, there's a long history here. And so there, there's, you know, there hasn't always been this way, but this has been, you know, three quarters of a century now where we do really see this, this Christian nationalism together with gender traditionalism really uh, defining the core of evangelical identity. And, um, and so it is, you know, it is persistent. And if, you know, depending on your location within the evangelical subculture, this may have been absolutely, you know, unavoidable, permeating everything, or you may have been on the edges of it, bumped up against it here or there. And so, you know, hearing from different people's stories, um, you know, many were fully, fully immersed and others, it's more, oh, that makes sense now what I was seeing over there or what I saw in my, you know, my friend's family or when I was in this Bible study in college and I had no clue what they were talking about and now it all makes sense. So it really, you know, I think people have been located either right at the center or more on the edges. But but yeah, there it, it, there's a long history to this. Uh, okay, so I, I want to, um, I don't want to go much longer, but I do have a couple more questions about um, more recent events. Um, I have to say I am strangely and perhaps perversely excited to be interviewing you a little bit late in the publicity cycle for this book, just because there are a few really recent events that I think uh, really speak to the things that you argue, um, things that happen after the book came out. Um, there are lots and lots of them, but I do want to, um, as tactfully as I can, focus on one of them. Uh, what do you make of recent events surrounding Jerry Falwell Jr.'s uh, displacement from Liberty and uh, the ensuing sex scandal? I have to think that uh, complementarian gender roles and, and militant masculinity and all of the pressures therein um, were contributing factors here. Uh, do, do you think there is a connection? And, and can you speak to some of those recent events? 
<laughs> yeah, so it's funny because I actually had to take a couple of sentences out of my book um, in legal review just before it went to publication um, about the pool boy. Uh, even though it had been published in the New York Times by that point in time, there was still a little skittishness when I was, you know, discussing with the lawyer. And at one point she said, uh, because we went through the entire book, uh, sentence by sentence. And then she asked, you know, who do you think would want to sue you? And and uh, so Falwell Jr. was at the top of that list. So we um, we went through those sections, I think three times over with a fine tooth comb and, and ended up taking out a couple of sentences, which are going back in for the reprint edition. <laughs> but we, we've got, we've got plenty of evidence now, um, the, the pool boy saga and so on. Um, so how does this reflect this, this, um, this kind of militant masculinity? I, I, I'll start and then there are still open questions. So obviously this idea of, um, kind of the, the masculine power and boys will be boys. And be, because this isn't anything new, like this, the story didn't break now. We just have more details. We had a lot of details already last summer, but people in and around Liberty, this was almost an open secret. This, if not these specifics, his behavior. Um, and, and so for years and years, all kinds of red flags. I mean, I've been following his Instagram um, uh, feed for a long time. And, you know, I, I've done some work with Title IX in higher education. And there were enough posts that I thought, you know, him with students, yeah. female, student, male students, and just thought, ah, red flags everywhere. But the idea that, again, boys will be boys and, uh, you know, men are filled with testosterone and there are going to be certain side effects. And this is what you need in a strong leadership. You kind of take what comes with it. Um, that's part of it. The kind of celebrity culture and um, just abuses of power that were allowed in order to promote the brand and then covered up in order to protect the brand. I mean, all of that is very well entrenched within conservative evangelicalism. And that's really what the last chapter of my book is about. Um, so he fits those patterns. Now, their story, um, Jerry and Becky Falwell, it's it's not your typical evangelical sex scandal, I think we can admit. And so I have a lot of questions. I am especially curious about Becky. Um, and yes, we aren't me too. too much in terms of her agency. But early on, even when she was um, kind of depicted as, you know, oh, Jerry's throwing her under the bus, you know, she had the affair. I thought, no, 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 that does not ring true to what we already know. Um, Especially like, when did that Politico piece come out? It was like, what, two years ago? It was a while ago. And, right. And so many right. Liberty people were saying, um, oh, really, she's the woman behind the man kind of language um, and, and just kind of absolving him of yeah. agency, which in such complementarian circles was fascinating to me. Exactly. I mean, there always is the blame the woman motif. So, you know, you've got that to work with. But um, especially with regard to female sexuality, right, that um, the idea that a woman really needs to meet her husband's every sexual need. Now, it's not clear to me what 
his sexual needs actually are, but their you know, voyeurism seems to be a part of it. So I wonder if, you know, how she understood her role, uh, her agency in this, was this her prerogative? Was she also, or primarily doing this to fulfill his sexual needs, which were maybe not standard, but she was his wife. We just don't have that information. And, um, and I'm really curious about that. And so it's not a neat story. It's not, it doesn't fit into this neat package. It definitely reinforces kind of the toxicity within this culture of the hypocrisy of, you know, promoting these values and enforcing them upon others even as those with real power seem to feel free to um, discard uh, these moral values. So there's a lot that's familiar, and then there are some things that that still um, lack explanation. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for uh, helping me unpack that a little bit. And I uh, I didn't ask the question to be, to be prurient, and I, I hope it didn't come across that way. I just think that the, the way that... Um, call it patriarchy, call it complementarian gender roles, both, I'm not sure. Um, the way those things are manifesting is is so complex and so um, it doesn't lend itself easily to one category or another. I, I think it's, it's such a human, um, interesting situation in that way. It is. It is. And no, I mean, I write on sexuality and I speak on sexuality. And so, you know, this is absolutely fair game in terms of, I think evangelicals themselves and certainly within the liberty community have been struggling to understand this. And, and again, it does resonate with so many patterns that we have seen and, um, and sexuality has, has just been, you know, absolutely at the center of, kind of evangelical identity and uh, for so long. So I think it's, it's wholly appropriate to be, um, to be asking these questions and to try to bring in a larger context to make sense of it. Okay, good. I, I'm glad you're with me on that and I appreciate you giving us some more context. Uh, you mentioned just a minute ago about the final chapter of the book, so I, I want to go there now. Uh, by the time I got to the end of Evangelical Mulligan's A History, uh, which is your final chapter, I was just exhausted. There's this really long list of abuse of power, um, of sex scandal after sex scandal after sex scandal. Bill Gothard, Ted Haggard, Mark Driscoll, Doug Phillips, Doug Wilson, Roy Moore, Bill Hybels, on and on and on and on, uh, to say nothing of President Trump himself, um, sort of the, the specter over all of this. I think it's pretty easy to be exhausted, especially as a woman. Um, I am also a sexual assault survivor. I'm sure many of your uh, female evangelical or post-evangelical readers are as well. Um, and yet, your book does not end on a note of exhaustion. It ends on a note of hope. Uh, your conclusion ends by saying, appreciating how this ideology developed over time is essential for those who wish to dismantle it. What was once done might also be undone. Uh, first of all, <laughs> from your lips to God's ears. Secondly, um, other than understanding how we got to this point, uh, how does the undoing begin? Okay, first of all, 
let me say that I hated writing that chapter. For many of these chapters, I just threw myself into them. I was totally in the zone and loved every minute of it. It felt cathartic to write some of those chapters and to, to just hold some of these people accountable um, uh, in, in this longer history. And then I got to this last chapter and I, I hated, I had been again, gathering these sources for years. Um, I had first been, in fact, when I decided to write this book in 2016, one of the first things I did was talk with a lawyer because that was pre me too, pre church too. And, um, very little of this was actually out in public and much of it was existing just on survivor blogs and activist blogs. And that's, those are the blogs I'd been following for years. And so I really want to give a shout out to survivors themselves who brought this to light, um, to people who work to amplify their voices, and then to the journalists who, during Me Too movement, really listened to these stories and 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 brought them to a national audience so that we can talk about them um, and and really grapple with them. So um, that's kind of how this this evolved in terms of my research. But um, the chapter was initially much longer. I had to cut out so many additional stories, horrifying stories of sexual abuses on the mission field in different organizations. And I ended up just winnowing things down to if the guy has appeared in the book before now, he's in this chapter. If it was somebody else, they're getting a pass because there was just too many. And even then, when I when I gave the first draft of this chapter to my editor, um, his comments, I love my editor, he's ruthless. Um, his, his comment on this chapter was, um, this is, what did he say? Um, bloated and undisciplined. <laughs> and I wanted to tell him, I mean, blame the men, right? I mean, this is really hard to, yeah. to, to get a hold of all of this and, and, and bring order to this. And, uh, and, but I asked my editor several times, do we need this chapter? Just tell me and we can pull this chapter. I'm already pushing word count. I hate this. And he kept saying, no, we need this in the book. Um, and so, so we went with it. Um, but I hated editing it every single round. I would have to, you know, get, get through the book. I'm liking this book. And then just stop at that chapter and think, do I really have to do this? So, so if that was the reader experience, that was the writer experience too, but I do think we needed that chapter in there. That is part of the story. And it is the dark side to this um, ideology that, that has a long history. Um, that hope in the end, when I finished writing the manuscript, I was not hopeful. I had very little hope. And that sentence was not in the book. Um, and my editor said, can you give us something here, Kristen? Can you give us something to hold on to? And I, I first said, I don't think I can. I, I don't. I have just been, it is so deeply entrenched. And, and I see what's going on around us. And I'm not, I, I just don't have hope to offer. And I don't want to offer false hope. And then he pushed back again. He's like, just, just give us something. And so it was that last sentence. And it felt too feeble as I wrote it. But I do actually believe that. I, I think there's a, generally, there's a power in history that, especially with evangelical gender roles, that they are always presented as God-given, as God-ordained, as standing throughout all time, in all places, as you know, just incredibly static. 
And that is not the case. And history makes that very clear that these roles, these ideals were created in a specific moment by specific people for specific purposes, often having to do with enhancing their own power. And I think once we see that, then then the ideology, the, the gender roles, the ideals start to lose their power. And then we can kind of clear a space to ask, you know, is this Christian? Is this what we want? Is this what we mean? And I, I think that history can play a powerful role simply in showing how things were made. Then we can decide if we want to keep them that way or if we want to maybe remake them. So I, I do stand by that. Um, but when I came to the end of the book itself, um, it was hard to find hope. I will say that since the book has been published and the response to the book among so many evangelicals themselves has been to embrace it, I did not anticipate that. I've heard from so many readers who are just deeply entrenched, and many still are, in these organizations, in these communities who are just saying thank you. And, um, and, and that has been stunning to me and incredibly gratifying. And, and, and so now I, that's where my hope is at this point, that there are more people out there who are not okay with this, even as they've been complicit in this. But many have also said to me that they didn't feel they could say something. Pastors who felt that they would lose their churches if they spoke out against this, um, you know, individuals who didn't want to strain family relationships or, or, you know, rock the boat in their churches and their communities who are now saying, um, yeah, this, this is not okay. And I think more and more of those people really, this is a time to speak out. Yes, uh, absolutely. I, like I said, that chapter was, um, I, I think I had to put the book down and pick it back up again a day or two later because I just, I thought, goodness gracious, like this list just will not end. Um, yeah. And and then I started looking for the voices that you were recentering. Um, you mentioned Rachel Den Hollander in that yes. chapter as well. I'm such a huge, I didn't want to end this interview without saying yes. um, I love Rachel Den Hollander. She's such a hero of the faith and everyone should be talking about her that way. Um, yes. And exactly. There are so few actual heroes in this book and she is one of them. Jules Woodson is another one. And I, I was so glad that I could create a space in this book, in this awful chronicle of, of abuses, abuses of power, really, you know, the corruption of, of, of a faith is, is what I, what I call it in the subtitle and have Rachel Den Hollander speak truth and really reveal the corruption. And, and the truth that she speaks is I think the most powerful truth, truth, God does not need your protection. And again, so much of um, these abuses had been covered up I mean, the perpetrators are one thing. I'm actually much less interested in perpetrators in any given situation, much more interested in the enablers, in the community who oh, comes absolutely. around, who forgives, condones, covers up. And they so often have done it in the name of Christ, which really is blasphemy, right? It, it is just um, devastating. And to have somebody with the moral clarity and power of Rachel Den Hollander just set things straight. God does not need your protection. 
simply asks for your obedience. And what that looks like here is exposing these abuses. And I absolutely love that. And that was, that's really the moral clarity of the book. Uh, well, typically we end these interviews with uh, letting the author have the last word and asking you what you'd like to leave our listeners with. Uh, but that was a pretty fantastic mic drop. So I think we'll I, I just think leave it at that. Yes. <laughs> I think we'll just leave it with uh, Rachel Den Hollander is a hero and uh, abuse of power shall not stand. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation, Kristen. I've really enjoyed it, um, and I appreciate your time and your hard work and uh, this wonderful book. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you.